Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 27. And we read the first eight verses concerning the brazen altar. We have explained somewhat what it is. And you, of course, if you will, look at your picture. And you'll see it's at the entrance of the gate there of the court that's around the tabernacle proper. We had a few more uh, comments to make about the brazen altar. And uh, we will not read that portion again. You'll have it before you anyway. And you know it was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with brass. And of course, brass is a symbol of judgment. And it was a place for... There were places in the corners of it to put staves to... uh, The rings in the corners to put staves in wherewith they could carry it and transport it from place to place. And you find that in verse 6. But the brazen altar itself, you know, the, this speaks of the cross of Christ. The cross is now the meeting place between God and the sinner. And no other ground on which the sinner can come into the presence of God. Because you remember, you start out at the gate there. Come to the brazen altar and the brazen labor. Look at your picture. And then you come into the, the holy place here. And then you go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and that's where God's presence was known to be. And uh, they, they say that there was a Shekinah glory, a, a real bright glory in, within that, uh, behind that veil, indicating God's presence. Much like when Jesus was transfigured before uh, Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration, and His face did shine as the sun, His raiment was white as the light, and Each gospel writer gives different descriptions of it. So this brazen altar uh, then speaks of the the cross. Now, this brazen altar uh, was made by the hands of men. Remember, God told him how to make it, but it was according to God's pattern that it was made. And if you think of the cross, the cross was made by the hands of men, but it was God's pattern because God said in His Word that uh, in Acts 2 verse 23, And by the way, let me just give you a hint. Write some of these references down as I go along. And this is one we've referred to time and time again. It says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So it was God's plan. It says, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And then it goes on to say, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death and so on. So God raised him up after he was crucified and buried. So the brazen altar then is symbolical of the cross. Because that brazen altar is where, the, is where the sacrifice was made for the sinner. The sacrifice was made for not only all the children of Israel that they had to bring their offering to be sacrificed, but for the priests themselves. Because they were not holy until they were made holy by God. Because they were men. And that's why in the book of Hebrews it tells us that... Uh, Christ has made our high priest uh, because he was without sin and he did not need to offer first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people because he had none to offer for. So when Christ offered himself, he offered for the sins of the people, for, for you and I. And that's the only difference. Now then, uh, the brazen altar was a barrier to those who did not sacrifice on the altar. It was a barrier. They could not pass that. And uh, so the cross of Christ is a barrier. Uh, Paul 
speaks of the cross as a savior of life unto life to them that believe and death to those that refuse, those who do not believe. It had a twofold effect. The cross today of Christ has a twofold effect. Jesus Christ himself has a twofold effect. Those that receive him, salvation. Those who refuse him, uh, on the other side, uh, a savor unto death, it says. Now then, this brazen altar was carried by the two staves. Remember we mentioned the two staves that were put into these rings on the corner of it? And that's the way it was carried. And by the way, the gospel itself has two staves. And one of them is the death of Christ. The other one is the resurrection of Christ. If we carry the gospel, we do not preach just part of it. Uh, we do not preach just Christ's death because he rose again. We do not preach just Christ's resurrection. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification is the way the Bible puts it. And that is the gospel. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. you find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read all four verses, verses 1 through 4. Now then, you can imagine what would happen if that altar, that brazen altar, were carried by only one state. It would turn it over. It would... It would destroy it. It would wreck it, wouldn't it? And so one stave would wreck the altar, but two staves hold it upright, and that's the way it is born and carried. Now then, um, when we think of, of where we've come so far in Exodus chapter 27, I think we've discussed the altar of sacrifice enough because we had one lesson before on it, and now we'll continue with the verses that follow that. Verses 9 through 21. Look at in the Exodus 27, verses 9 through 21. We'll talk about the, the court of the tabernacle. Verse 9. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine linen. Now, look at your picture and you'll see all this big court around the tabernacle was made of fine linen, fine twine linen, and it was a hundred cubits long. And then it says, and, and twenty pillars thereof, and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. Now notice the sockets here are not of silver, they're of brass. Uh, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. That is the top, the crown of them, the top of these uh, posts, you might say, uh, the pillars for, that holds up the linen, were brass at the bottom instead of silver, and they were silver on the top. So you have... Silver represents redemption. We taught, taught you that before. The silver sockets under the boards of the tabernacle. But brass speaks of judgment. So, not only are our sins judged in Christ, but He has made atonement for our sins. And that's the outside of the court is revealed in that way because the brass speaks of judgment. Remember we pointed out that in John 3, verse 14, I believe, that uh, John says... And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and it was a serpent of brass in the book of Numbers that he was that Moses was to make and put upon a pole. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, that serpent of brass 
was symbolical of uh, the Lord bearing the judgment that was upon the children of Israel. They were bitten by fiery serpents. And everyone that uh, was bitten was dying. There was a plague upon them because of... And I can tell you what it's about later on. But there was a judgment upon them. But God made a way of deliverance for them. said, Moses, you make a serpent of brass, put him before the pole, and it will come to pass that everyone that beholds that serpent of brass, recognizing that their judgment is with God, will live. And so you come to the New Testament, and Jesus applies this to Himself. That He bore our judgment. We're one of the descendants of death as well. And He bore the judgment of our sins upon Himself. So He says that everyone that... Uh, Whosoever believeth on him or looks to him, as they looked at the one in the Old Testament, the serpent of brass, everyone that looks to him shall live. And we have a message on life for a look. It was life for a look in the Old Testament, and it's also looking to Jesus in faith, in believing, uh, shall have eternal life. And you read John 3, verses 14 through 16. And of course, verse, verse 16 you're well acquainted with. Uh, anyway... What we find here is, as we're reading this and studying it, that I even forgot where I was reading. I read on down part of it, didn't I? I down to verse 10. I guess that's as far as I got. Did I read verse 9 and 10? Okay. Verse 11. And likewise for the north side. In length there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long, and its twenty pillars, and there twenty sockets of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits, and their uh, pillars of ten, and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be fifty cubits. Now look, the hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings... Now you're looking at the gate there, the entrance... On the other side, uh, it says, shall be hangings fifteen, shall be hangings fifteen cubits, and their pillars three, and their uh, their sockets three. So you have on each side three three uh, extra pillars. Of course, you have the corner ones that make up the side, and then you have three, and uh, you can count it either way from the gate over to the corner if you look at your picture, or either way you want to look at it. There's three in additional to the ones on the gate, or if you want to count it from the from the gate, the one on the gate to the corner, because the corner and the uh, pillar at the gate would be one way or the other. So there's three either way you look at, depending on which way you count them. But the hangings were on these pillars. Now then, uh, in uh, verse 16 says, And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. They see, see the gate? So you count four and as far as the gate is concerned. So the three probably count from the corner over to the third one. Because it, you notice now it's separated. You following me on the picture? Okay. And their pillars four and their sockets four. Now then, all the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. That means the tops of them. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass. That's at the bottom. The length of the court 
shall be an hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twined linen, and their sockets. When we get into the height of it, five cubits is seven and a half feet high. And the natural, unless you're a giant, the natural height of men is six to six and a half feet, or not too much unless you're a basketball player like some of the ones we have, and they go to be seven. But what we're seeing is that man cannot enter from the outside and he cannot see it from the outside. It cannot be approached from the outside. You have to come through the gate. And we'll get, that's another point in the message later on. The natural man is usually six, six and a half feet or even shorter or whatever. But uh, some of the giant type men might get the peak over, but they couldn't get over unless they were a good high jumper. So anyway... That's a point that the Lord makes to show that the only way of entrance really is through the gate. And that's the way God wants us all to enter. And when we study the gate, we'll find that that's the entrance. And Christ is symbolized there as well. But let's go on and read, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Uh, verse uh, 18 says, The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twine linen and their sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle in all the service thereof and all the pins thereof, that means uh, like tent pegs or pins that are driven into the ground, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. And thou shalt command the children of Israel uh, that they bring pure oil olive for the light. Now we'll just leave verses 20 and 21 to another point because we find that it indicates uh, the light that was brought for the uh, uh, inside of the tabernacle. But anyway, we'll just stop there for a little bit and study what we've read thus far. Now then, for a memory verse for this section, Psalm 100 in verse 4, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and in, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. So that would be a good memory verse for this section. Psalm 100 and verse 4. Now, remember we've completed a study of the tabernacle proper. The, the whole the building, the boards, and, and the structure of the tabernacle itself. And uh, we have found that this structure, of course, of the boards was made of acacia wood, speaking of the humanity of Christ. And then, of course, we know it was covered with gold, speaks of the the uh, deity of Christ. And then we've studied the Ark of the Covenant. Let, let, let me just give you a brief. The Ark of the Covenant, behind the veil there, it spoke, spoke of Christ. And in that Ark were what? Three things, the golden pot of manna, an Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of stone, the law. And I won't go and repeat all that they symbolize, if you'd like it, I could repeat it, but I don't want to keep repeating myself too much because you'll get bored with me and get aboard to me, probably. And then in the holy place, we had the table of showbread, remember? And we had the, the lampstand. And we had the altar of incense before you go into the, the holy of holies. And we had the... Uh, inner covering of the tabernacle, the ceiling we call it. And then we had the uh, other coverings, the goat's hair over that, and then the ram skins dyed red over that, and then the badger skins. Four coverings and four layers of coverings. And we gave you what each one of those represented. And then we came to this chapter, and outside the tabernacle we had the, 
in the court that brazen altar that we just studied. This brazen altar. And then we uh, will find the next thing is the brazen labor, but we don't get to the brazen labor till you get over to something about the priest in the 30th chapter. You find the brazen labor mentioned in verse 18. Chapter 30, verse 18. And when we start studying about the, the priestly work, we'll find that brazen labor very prominent because that's where the priests had to wash before they entered in to the tabernacle itself. It was filled with water. It was made of brass. And you can see it on your picture there. So we studied all these things. We studied how that the inner court was full of glory and beauty. And the goat's hair speaks of Christ our substitute. The ram's skins dyed red speaks of Christ who was completely de devoted to the Father's will. And then the badger's skin spoke of the humiliation of Christ. That's the outside. And just inside the gate, we come to this brazen altar, and we've talked about how this pictures the cro cross of Christ, and that this was the meeting place between God and man, so that the cross is now the meeting place between God and man. Even as it's preached, it's the meeting place. And this tabernacle proper stood in an open place. It was surrounded by this court fence. We said it was 100, 100 cubits or 150 feet long and 50 cubits. There's a 75 feet wide. Just multiply it by one and a half. The 100 make it 150 because a cubit ordinarily was 18 inches. That's the usual term in the Old Testament. And some have argued that maybe it was 22 inches. But we're not going to go into the differences between the opinions of some. But if it was 100 cubits, basically it was 150 feet in length. And if it was 50 cubits, that would be 75 feet in width. And uh, we know that this court fence surrounded the tabernacle itself. And it was enclosed by hangings of fine twine linen. That's, that's what you find on the, on the outside of this court. And all these pillars or posts, you might call them, hold up the fine twine linen. And these linen curtains were suspended from these 60 pillars, 20 on the south, 20 on the north, 10 on the west, and 10 on the east. But you know, on the east, you have the gate. You have just as many pillars, but it's divided because you have the, the gate of the court there. And no doubt that these pillars were covered with acacia wood, were made, I shouldn't say covered, but made of acacia wood, because this is the most durable of the wood that you could find. And this is this formed what we know as the court around, we'll call it a, a fence around the yard, a fence around the tabernacle. And then on the east, this you have this gate or door, which was made of fine twine linen, but it was made attractive by the same colors wrought in the veil. It had these same colors, this gate of the court. It had a beautiful attraction. And uh, the floor of the court in the tabernacle was like a desert. It was just ground. And in order to see the beauty of, of anything, the priest had to look up. You couldn't look down and find any comfort in that. And in that, it was not like the temple. The temple... Uh, the floor was covered with gold. Look at 1 Kings 6, verse 30. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 30. 
It says, And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. So when Solomon built the temple, it says he overlaid the floor with gold. That was not like the tabernacle. It had a desert floor in it. So the only way you could see the glory was not looking down at the desert floor, but looking at the gold of the walls and looking at the ceiling. And then you saw the glory of it. And immediately around the court of the tabernacle were the tents of the Levites. You, you have your diagram of the Israelitish camp. If you look at that, you'll see the Kohathites, Gersonites, Maronites, and then on the front of it, you have Aaron and, and uh, Moses and Aaron. So the, this, this was the uh, priestly family. These were the Levites immediately around the tabernacle. You see that? If you look at it in the front, you have Moses and Aaron. On one side, you have the Kohathites. And it tells the number of them. And then on the other side, the Amorites. And then on the back side of it, you have the Gershonites. And by the way, these three of the family of Levi were the ones that transported the tabernacle. These three families. And we'll get into that. And it's very interesting because some of them, when we start studying about how it was transported, there was one family that carried all the pieces of furniture upon their shoulders or carried them by hand. They usually lifted them up and carried them this way on their shoulders, one in the front and back, or maybe two, depending on the length of the of the uh, thing that was to be transported. And the others that transported the, the vessels inside, like the table of showbread, the uh, golden candlestick, and the instruments, and, and the things that applied to uh, the inside and the keeping of things inside, were carried uh, on... Wagons, not the most of the wagons, but a fewer of the wagons. Then you find that the ones that carried the boards of the tabernacle and the coverings, they had more wagons to carry because they had a heavier load to bear. All of this is very interesting because it shows that whatever place we have in the service of God, He gives us sufficient equipment to carry it out. Isn't that amazing that you would find that? They were able... To transport it by hand, those that were of one one family here, and those three families. If you look at it again, the uh, Mariites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites were the ones that did the carrying of all the tabernacle itself in different ways. And as I say, when we get over to the transportation of it, you'll find that they all had sufficient equipment to do their job. So let me just stop and say this. Uh, as far as you and I in God's service is concerned, God will give you sufficient equipment to do whatever He's called you to do. He will make His availability sufficient for your ministry or your service. And so let's not use the excuse, I can't do this and I can't do that. You can do anything God wants you to do. And you'll have the strength, you'll have the power, You'll have the equipment. You'll have the necessities. You'll have the tools to do it with. God has made that His plan. Remember over in the New Testament when Jesus was giving uh, some of the uh, servants various things. He gave one five talents, one two talents, and one ten talents, and so on. 
they have sufficient to meet their goal and to and to prosper in the way that God intended them to prosper. And talents there were well, that was money. We usually a lot of times we speak of it as talents like gifts, but it was money in that sense when we get in the gospels, and we could apply it to uh, our abilities and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it was actually money that they were to gain that much, you know. And one said that I invested the five talents and you and I prospered and I've got other five. And Jesus said, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so on and so forth. And that's another story altogether. Now, so immediately around this court of the tabernacle that we're studying, uh, there were these tents of the, of the Levites. And beyond and enriching them and encircling them and backing them up were all of these tribes. If you notice the plan again, the diagram, were the uh, encircling them were the twelve tribes of Israel, three on either side, forming the square around the tabernacle. You see, when we start studying their location, you'll find that it's just exactly like uh, on your chart there. Judah, there were... Uh, 74,600. Zebulun, at the front, there were 57,000. Is that a four or one? 400. I have mine highlighted and I can't, I blurred out some of it. And then Issachar, there was 54,400. See how God makes it so balanced? You know, God is a God of order. You can look at that and see that God is certainly a God of order. He didn't leave anything to guess or speculation. He gave the right blueprint. He gave the right directions. And do you know He does the same thing for us today? He gives us exactly the right directions as to what to do. All the Word of God. Remember, He warned Moses time and time again. He says, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount. God gave him full instructions. Moses must have had a whale of a memory to, memor- to remember all that God told him. It doesn't say that he came down with a, with a tablet there with all this written on it. But he knew what God wanted. And that was divine instruction that he received. And he knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Isn't that amazing? We talk about Moses. Moses was meek, but he was not weak. But anyway, we're going with our thoughts here. Uh, the tabernacle formed the center of Israel's camp. Notice it was right in the center of it. And thus, this speaks of Christ. He is the center of the life of the Christian. All these tribes and all these families, the center was the tabernacle. The tabernacle speaks of Christ. And in all of our lives as Christians, Christ should be the exact center of our lives. The life of the Christian. Now this fence, we'll go ahead and expound some of verses 9 through 21 that we just read, the fence was made of fine linen that speaks of righteousness. And the solid white curtains were witness to the holiness of Christ, whose dwelling place it was. And if you read over in Revelation 19, verse 8, when the saints get to heaven, children of God, Revelation 19, verse 8, let's read verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give... uh, Give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Now look, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, 
clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. You know, some people say, well, I can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, it tells you many things that, I mean, you know, what could be easier to understand? When God says that they were clothed in fine linen, clean and white, and He tells us what it represents. He says, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So we don't have any question about it. There's a lot of people neglect the book of Revelation because they say, I can't understand it. But there's always a way to understand the Scripture if you let the Holy Spirit guide you and take all the other Scriptures and put them in context. I mean, put them into the, into the uh, interpretation, I should say, of what the Scriptures teach as a whole. And it will tell you. Uh, does not the Bible teach us in the book of Romans that we have Christ's righteousness? Doesn't it teach us in 2 Corinthians 5, I believe it's verse 21, where Paul says, He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? I mean, it's very simple. The last part of Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul is talking about Abraham and how that righteousness was imputed to him by faith. And he says, it was not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for us also, to whom it, righteousness, shall be imputed. The word means counted or reckoned. If we believe on him who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, then what's going to happen? We're going to be declared righteous. You see how all through the scriptures it passes from one image to another? And even this that we're studying here about the tabernacle shows us those various things. So this fence was made of fine linen. Back in Exodus now, speaking of the righteousness of saints. And if you'll notice, the tents were probably themselves made of goat's hair. In this, in this there's a definite contrast between God's dwelling place and the tents of Israel, or man's dwelling place. See these tents... The diagram of the Israelites' camp, they camped in tents. And if they were covered by goat's hair, this speaks of the difference between where God's dwelling place is and man's dwelling place. Man's was on the outside, and God's was on the inside. And the white walls of the court served as a barrier and protection. A barrier to those on the outside and protection to those on the inside. This court fence that you're looking at, let me say it again, <clears throat> to those on the outside, the holiness of which it spoke was an exclusion to all who would approach these divine courts otherwise than God Himself had ordered. And to those inside, it served as a shield and a shelter and an adornment, a glory and a defense. In other words, put yourself on the inside of this fence and you were protected. Put yourself on the outside of the tent, uh, fence, and it was a barrier. I call it fence, but it was a court. It was a barrier. And none could enter in but by the gate. Remember, we pointed that out. And we'll get to that, Christ being the door, in just a moment, when we get that far. But then uh, we find uh, in Psalm 84, verse 1 and 2, let me read this for you. Psalm 84, verse 1 and 2. It says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. So those on the outside fainted and were desiring to enter the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. 
Because God was on the inside. This tabernacle was the dwelling place of God, and the camp was the dwelling place of man. And the court stood between the two, between God and man. And the linen fence is a symbol of Christ's humanity and His perfect righteousness. He was righteous, even His human life. He was righteous because He said no one could convince Him of sin. And He was filling the office also between God and man. Christ was filling that office. Remember the Bible says there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So he, He was the only one by which they could enter. And when we talk about the pillars of the court, we'll say that, that they were 60 in number. They were placed at intervals of five cubits all around. And you know five cubits all around here. Uh, five in the Scriptures is a number of grace. You can take uh, numbers in the Scripture and they speak of many things. We know that there were uh, threes many times. It speaks of what? Death, burial, and resurrection. We, there's two that speaks of two witnesses. There's four that speaks of the number of man. And it speaks of the earth. How many points, main points to the commas? North, east, south, and west, right? Of course, you can divide it into 32. And if you were in the Boy Scouts, you had to learn all 32. North, north, northeast, northeast, east, northeast, east, southeast, east, east, south. South, southeast, and on around. But anyway, there's a lot of fine points. But the main points are four. The number of earth, the number of man. And five is in the Scriptures a number of grace, the grace of God. And seven is the number of completion or perfection. We find there's a lot of sevens. I have some uh, commentaries by uh, Grant. F.W. Grant is... The author, the author, and it's called the Numerical Bible. And he goes, it's a volume, set of volumes, about six, five or six volumes throughout scriptures. And he deals with numbers all the way through. Many of you are familiar with some of the numbers. But if you'll just rest assured, these are numbers of grace. That was said five pillars. Uh, dividing the, in, uh, making up the intervals between, the, we look at them as posts or pillars. And uh, <clears throat> we find that in between this linen fence speaks of righteousness, the brass at the bottom speaks of judgment, the tops of silver speak of redemption. Remember when we were talking about the, the base of the tabernacle itself were made of silver sockets. And they had the sockets of silver where the two tenons of the boards went down into the silver sockets. We said that each socket was probably 90 pounds weight, and two, that would be 180 pounds under each board. Pretty good foundation, isn't it? If you ever tried to lift 180 pounds, well, you'll know what it's all about. Blocks of cement, or sacks of cement, and imagine how, how much they weigh. It's pretty difficult. But anyway, we find that... Uh, <clears throat> that uh, this, uh, these pillars were supported, or the fence was supported by pillars, which speaks of Christ's humanity. And He's the one who knew no sin. In the book of Hebrews, says that He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And it is at the court that God meets man. This court foreshadowed Christ on earth, tabernacling among men. In John 1.14, it says, He dwelt among us. 
The Word was made, became flesh, and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there means tabernacled among us. And it says later on, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the court was resting upon the earth. And the earth pointed to Christ as the root out of dry ground. As Isaiah speaks of, He shall be, come up before you as the root out of dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness, neither is there any beauty that we should desire Him. So it speaks of Christ in that way. That's Isaiah 53, verse 2. And the court was for an elect and redeemed people. Look in Psalm 65, verse 4. Psalm 65 and verse 4. Notice what it says here. It says, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Of course, later on, the tabernacle was, gave way to the temple that was built. And of course, we've already read, uh, did we read Psalm 100 and verse 4? I think that was our, that was our uh, memory verse, wasn't it? Alright. Now then, we need to notice that the stranger on the outside, we'll call him the Gentile, had the same liberty of approach to the altar as the Israelite. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, you had the same approach. There's no one could enter any other way. And thus God is saying in the Old Testament that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, the Jew and the Greek. For the, and He tells us about salvation. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. In fact, the Bible says that very distinctly. In Romans chapter 10 where it says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And call, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. So, from the outside, the stranger had to approach in the same way that the Israelite approached. And uh, while on the outside, the world would... The wall would shut you off from God's presence. And when on the inside, the wall shuts you in. Kind of like Noah's Ark. The world was shut out of Noah's Ark. Those that were on the inside were sealed in. God sealed the door. Remember how God sealed it? When God shut the door, He sealed it. And there was no way of escape. Someone says, well, you know, you might get... If that ark was a picture of Christ, you might get on the outside. I don't know how. When God seals you inside it, right? How are you going to get out? If God puts you in there, and it's typical of Christ, symbolical of Christ, if God put us in Christ, I don't see how you're going to get out. Someone said, well, you can lose yourself. The devil can get you. Or the world can get you. The Bible says, you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Okay, it says that in the book of Colossians, I believe, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, if ye then, let me, let me give you some verses, one through four possibly. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Okay, here's, here's Christ. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You're in God's hands. And in, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. And the Bible tells us that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God under the day of redemption. So what is your position spiritually as a believer? You're with Christ. 
you're in God and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what is the devil or any enemy, uh, even the devil or, or any enemy that you might have? What would they have to do? First of all, they'd have to break that seal of the Holy Spirit that's wrapped around the whole. They'd have to open God's hand and rescue from God's hand, the almighty hand of God. Then they'd have to separate you from Christ. And the Bible says in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You believe in security of the believer? I do. I believe you're secure. I don't think the world, the flesh, or the devil can get you out of God's hand and away from Christ and break the seal of the Holy Spirit. And you hear people saying, well, if I believe like you Baptists, I'll just go out and live any way I want to. No, you would not. If you believe like most of us should believe. You know why? The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, if you want to write it down. Titus 2 verse 11. Listen. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Now what does that grace do? The grace that saves. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Teaching us, grace teaches as well as saves. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and 